You know, the video from Sunday night of Masab sharing here in this community, that's been viewed close to 250,000 times already on YouTube, made its way around the world. And uh, we are just super grateful for all that God is continuing to do. I've just gotten absolutely blown up this week by our Jewish friends in the community saying thank you for uh, all of what God did on that night, feeling supported, feeling like, man, we've got some friends in the region who are standing with us. And uh, I just want to say thank you for being there supporting. I know it was a little rainy and I know it was a little nasty out, but I think it's so important that the church in these crucial moments takes specific stands on behalf of the great cultural issues of our day. Because like I mentioned to you before, I really believe what's going on right now in the Middle East is the fulfillment of some prophetic things that are playing out right in front of us. And uh, for us, it's just so important that we pay attention to the times of the signs. Yeah, scripture says that no man knows the day nor the hour when Christ will return. I don't have a date. If you have one, you're wrong. Uh, but the reality is, is this. Uh, the Bible says that when these things begin to happen, it is not the end, but it testifies that the end is near. And the reality is, friend, you and I, we live, frankly, on borrowed time. I think that there is a predominant lie in our culture that makes us feel like tomorrow is promised when the Bible says actually the opposite is true. So we've got an entire generation that has bought into the lie that I'll get right with God tomorrow, next week, next year. Let me have my fun in college. Let me sow my wild oats. Let me get my wild STDs. Let me just do this thing. And then when I'm done having my fun, I'm going to dedicate my last years to God. Well, the problem is by the time that you ever get around to it, if you do, you got a broken heart, you got a wounded identity, you got a messed up mind, you got a demonized soul. Can I tell you, it'll save you a lot of heartache and trouble just to get your life right with God and walk with him for the rest of your days. And so we unapologetically call a generation to the fidelity and to the followership of Christ because I believe that it is the most important decision that you will ever make. In fact, I think it was maybe A.W. Tozer who said the most important thing about your life is what comes to mind when you think about God. And the problem is because of what people have walked through, family systems that they was raised in, trauma, hurt that they've experienced, oftentimes what comes to our mind when we think about God is actually the opposite of who God is. We think of him as angry, as somehow far removed from the cries of his people, distant, deistic, old, geriatric. If he ever gets around to it, he'll hit us on the head with a hammer for our last mistake. And the reality is, is that actually when you read the story of God, it is so radical, his loving kindness for his people. Do you know that God is more patient than you are dumb? And that's really good news because we have the propensity to be dumb and myself included, we've got the propensity to be that way. And the reality is, friend, for you and I, the Bible says that God desires mercy, not judgment, that he is overflowing with loving kindness for his people, that when we are faithless, he is faithful, which means that all God knows how to give are second chances. And God is abundant in his love towards us. In fact, the Bible says that he demonstrated his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the reality is in a lot of religions, they talk about the philosophy of love, the concept of love or the construct of love, but only in Christianity does it talk about the demonstration of love. In this way, God demonstrated his love towards 
us. The demonstration was his son, the express image of the father, the one who said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. The one who said, I will make a way where there seems to be no way and you can enter into right relationship with God above through fellowship with his son below. And this Jesus who splits all of time and space and introduces the world into a new covenant of faith received by grace in the finished work of Christ Jesus, that God invites us in, welcomes us back, and in doing so, contends even in the midst of our own proclivities to backslide, be rebellious, have hard hearts, and make mistakes. And I don't know about you, but it's like always after that mistake that you make, it's always you find yourself in dialogue with God. Like this is my last time, I'm never gonna do it again. And the Bible says that the Lord knows the future. So he actually knows the date of your next mistake, but he has already preloaded your account with love, mercy, and forgiveness. I'm telling you, you can search all of the world religious systems. There is not another message better than that. That the God who has factored in all of your mistakes has also factored in all of his love. And the reality is, is that love and mercy and kindness, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And you gotta know tonight that the grace of God abounds over your life. It invites you into right relationship with him. In doing so, it removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. It sets you on a firm foundation. It rewrites your story. It hardwires your destiny. It secures your eternity. We don't give the grace of God the credit that it actually deserves because we wouldn't be here outside of his grace. And you wouldn't either. You are not the sum total of your resume or your skill set or your personality. You're not as good looking as you think you are. You're not as charming or talented or intellectual as you have somebody has maybe told you in the past. The reality is we are here today as byproducts of the grace of God. God loved the hell out of us and in doing so made us sons and daughters of him. That's the good news. And the Bible says, be careful because the temptation of the human experience is that that which starts in the spirit ends up continuing in the flesh, which means we have a regenerative experience, but then we begin to lean on our own understanding instead of what God understands. Do you know that God understands things about your life right now that you haven't even attempted to quantify? God understands. Why? Because he designed it. He's the blueprint originator. That's why I don't get when people are like, well, you know, I know the Bible says all these things and all these ethics and all these commands and all these ways that you're supposed to live right, but it just don't make sense to me. It don't need to make sense to you. It made sense to God. God is the creator of the human experience. So when he says these things are gonna damage your heart, you don't have to touch the stove to know that it's gonna burn. You just trust the one who made it. And so for us, as we learn to trust God and lean not on our own understanding, we align ourselves with what scripture says, that his thoughts are not always our thoughts. His ways are not always our ways. In fact, his mind, his intent, his idea, his motive, it is high above. And if you allow your followership of Christ to always stop at the limit of your own understanding, then what you have signed up for is humanism, not Christianity. Well, I don't understand. So therefore this is where my obedience stops. Can I tell you the more I walk with the Lord, the less I understand about the things that he asked me to do but I've developed a stubborn faithfulness just to show up and watch him work. And the reality is, is when you develop a place of relationship with him where you're just willing to trust that God knows best. He's seen where I'm going. He's already prepared a seat for me at the table. If God says go, he's got a green light and a yes and an availability in my heart. I'm telling you, it's just easier to trust Jesus because the more that you walk with him, the less that you will understand about the ways in which he works. Because God is a mystery to behold. He's not a problem to be solved. 
You gotta hear me tonight, because I'm gonna address the whole spirit of the age, and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tear down some high thoughts and some pagan philosophies. God is not a problem for you to diagnose, or you to understand, or you to reverse engineer. He is a mystery for you to behold. And the further you're drawn into mystery, oftentimes the less you understand. And I'm not talking about the understanding of orthodox things, but the more that you get drawn into the mystery of God, the more that you are overwhelmed that this God works outside of the constraints of time and space. He works outside of the constraints of our own ability to intellectualize or synthesize human information. You think AI is smart. You think the internet is great. You think all of these things that they're developing in tech centers around the world is amazing. You haven't met God. In just the fingertip of his pinky, he holds the power of the universe. At his word, the galaxies were hung. At his voice, the Bible says the deer gives birth. At his breath, he made humanity out of dust. Out of man, he took rib and made woman. At this God's voice, kings and queens shake. Nations turn, things begin to shift. Principalities and powers are bound. At the voice, of the one who desires an intimate, personal, animated relationship with you. I'm just kind of bored with God and I just don't know about this church thing, man. Oh friend, we've sold God short on the power that he actually has. One moment in his presence, redeem everything about you. You are not too far gone, you're not too far broken, your story is not too messy. The one who was wounded on our behalf as we reach into his wounds, we are healed in our wounds. He says, yeah, I got the hole in my side. Stretch your hands in. Yeah, I got the holes in my hands and in my feet. Stretch your hands in. I was wounded on your behalf. Do you know that when you reach heaven, every disease is healed, every tear is wiped, every sorrow is eliminated? Do you know that the only person in heaven who has scars is Christ? You got a redeemed body. You've been made whole but you will forever gaze on the one who was wounded on your behalf. <laughs> that God is worthy of your worship. Well, why do y'all worship the way you do? And it's hype and it's emotional and it's Bobby. Yeah, you'll be emotional too when you get a picture of the wounded lamb of the universe who hung on a cross and took your sin and paid your price. That's the God that we worship in the sanctuary of the living. This is the one that we have come to host. The church doesn't exist to host people, it exists to host the presence. The church exists for the glory of God. And by virtue, we get to be invited in. And see, we got it backwards in the church. I hope there's coffee and donuts. They better get the one that I want us. So I'm gonna go to the church down the street. Go to the church down the street. What I'm telling you is I'm less concerned about hosting your favorite Dunkin' Donuts. I'm more concerned about hosting the King of Kings the high king of glory. Because when his presence show up, you forget about the donuts. When his presence show up, you forget about the hot coffee. When his presence shows up, you don't find yourself complaining about all the parking. When, when the presence of God shows up, it'll answer questions you didn't even know you had. All of a sudden you walk away feeling like I've been made whole. I don't know who, I don't even know his name. I don't even know who touched me, but I know I was lame and now I can dance. I know I was sorrowful and now I have joy. I'm just beginning to learn about this Jesus. How many of you are grateful that God does not withhold his goodness from you until you somehow pass a theology test? You better figure it all out, then I'll show you my goodness. God's goodness is best demonstrated to the broken, the contrite and the sinner. That's why the religious leaders were so confused. Who is this man who eats with sinners? And God's like, let me show my kindness and goodness to those who don't deserve it. I don't know who he is, but he touched me. My life is never the same. 
I want you to behold the mystery of Jesus. I'm not here to explain Jesus. I'm here to behold Jesus. Because what you behold, you become like. And see, in the West, by virtue of the philosophical movement called enlightenment, we are obsessed like engineers trying to figure out how things work. You cannot figure out how God works. It's like the clock trying to figure out how the clockmaker thinks. I wonder why I always tick every second. I'm just not sure. I got a cuckoo bird that flies out every hour and announces. I just don't understand it. And the reality is, is that God is not looking to fit within the framework of what you understand. He's asking you to fit within the framework of what he understands. Because when you invite Jesus into your heart, he invites you into his. And what begins is a lifelong journey of exploring who he is. You'll never grow tired, never grow bored. You worship him for a billion trillion years and still barely scratch the surface of how great he is. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the most transformative figure to ever walk the earth. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't gotta live a perfect life from this day forward, but I'll tell you what, you'll be filled with an unexplainable power from on high. You'll have wind in your spirit like you never had. You'll have fire in your heart that you can't explain. And you'll know I have been touched by the whole I've been visited by the Most High. I don't even understand it, but I know I have experienced something so transcendent that my life will never be the same. And I'm telling you, you need an experience with the transcendent. You don't just need an experience with 16 fundamental truths. You don't just need an experience with a little nice TED Talk from a celebrity communicator. You need an experience with a transcendent God who defines beauty himself. The one who says, welcome into my world. I'll show you things you've never seen before come up higher. Let me tell you the things that are to come. You need an experience with a God like that. I think we got an entire generation of young people born with church because we serve them facts instead of beholding the mystery of who God is. You can have all the facts and miss out on him. You memorize all the scripture and miss out on him. But when God touches your life, it is undeniable. You will never be the same. <laughs> We need the touch of God on this generation. We need the touch of God in this city. We need the touch of God on our university campuses. Because when God walks in a room and he lays his hand on your shoulder and he heals that wound that nobody even knows about and he addresses that sexual abuse you never even told anybody about and he heals the nightmares that you're too embarrassed to talk about and he lifts off the suicidal thoughts you're too scared to admit, when that God touches your shoulder, your life is never the same. That's the God that we worship. And that's the God that you need to encounter because when that God touches you, good luck on deconstructing, you're ruined for life. You're like, nah, I seen the holy, man. <sighs> yeah, man, that church could mess up. That pastor could hurt me. I could see somebody who's a hypocrite, but you know what? I can't deny I've been touched by God. Who are these men who have been with Jesus? Who are these unlearned men who've got a boldness and a courage the world can't take? Who are these people that got peace in the midst of a prison cell? Who are these people that rally on the UW campus when they get death threats? Who are these people that pack out a church on a Sunday night? I don't know who they are, but they've been with Jesus. That's the God we serve. Yeah, I'd experience a God like that. It'd mess you up real good. Your life will never be the same. Let me share uh, this evening from the Old Testament. A sermon I've entitled, The Value of a Touch, The Value of Encounter. 
It's gonna challenge you tonight, but I believe the spirit of the Lord is here strong in this place tonight. And he's gonna be meeting people even while I preach. Watch, you're gonna see it. The spirit of God is gonna begin to minister to people. Because when the word of God goes forth, it ain't never returned void. It accomplishes everything it's been sent forth to do. The word of God is like an arrow shot into the enemy's camp. It always has 100% accuracy. When the word of God go forth, it'll hit three areas of your heart you didn't even want to admit. Bam, bam, bam. That's, that's how the spirit of the Lord works. So watch, you're gonna work tonight on people's hearts. But I wanna impress upon you the value of an encounter. I believe that one moment in the presence of God can change everything about you. And I never wanna host a service where there ain't no oil, where there ain't no presence. If that's all we're doing, we're just gathering a nice little nonprofit for a little community night and whatever. Listen, people need an encounter with the presence of the holy God. Because when you have that, it'll give you something unshakable. You'll go generations, decades. You'll still tell the testimony and the story of a time that God met you. You wrestled with God all night. He touched your life. He changed your name. He secured your destiny. We need an encounter with the presence of the living God. Now, the Bible warns against sails that have no wind and wineskins that have no wine. And you can have the best of the best, but if you miss out on the one who is worthy, it don't matter how cool you are, don't matter how talented you are, don't matter how good you sound, the reality is it's the oil and the anointing of his presence that pays the bills and makes the difference. You need the oil of God in your life. It's not just about a confession of faith. That's where it starts. You need the oil of God in your life. Uh, now watch, <clears throat> let me share with you about two prophets in the Old Testament, the value of an encounter. Watch. It's about a man named Elijah and his protege, a man named Elisha. Watch, watch. Elijah's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He'd been used by God in profound ways. Watch. Elijah confronts Jezebel, kills the prophets of Baal, rallies the prophetic voices of Israel to worship Yahweh. Elijah raises people from the dead, performs miracles of abundance, calls down fire from heaven, and fills the valleys with water. There are only two people in the Old Testament who did not die. The first was Enoch. The second was Elijah. Now watch, they walked so closely with God that when their time had come, instead of dying, they simply just graduated into heaven. Out of all of the crazy miracles that Elijah performs, the most profound, in my opinion, is found in 2 Kings 2. As he gets ready to graduate via a chariot of fire into heavenly places. And 2 Kings 2 records the final conversation he has with his protege, a man by the name of Elisha. I believe inherent within this conversation that Elijah has with his protege is the unveiling of the value of an encounter with God. In a verse one of 2 Kings 2, <clears throat> this is what the Bible says. Now it came to pass that when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. 
And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. I hope you're picking up on the pattern. Three times in the process of six verses, Elijah is testing Elisha, giving him the opportunity and the option to part ways, presenting it to him, saying, choose you this day whom you will serve, what you will do, what type of person you will be, what type of legacy you will live, what you will be known for in generations to come. Elisha, I'm giving you permission to take the off ramp. He is testing the purity of his heart. And three times Elisha passed the test by responding in this way. I will not live, leave you for as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will follow where you go. Now there are three strategic locations mentioned in the process of six verses where Elisha, like a shadow, refuses to leave Elijah's side. And I believe that these three geographic locations reveal something about the value of a stubborn believer who refuses to take the off-ramp of their faith when the road gets a little wild. Here's the reality. God is not interested in violating your free will or volition, which means he has given you the capacity to choose because he has made you in his image. It'd be a lot easier if God ordained the universe in such a way that humans were just kind of like these pseudo-autonomous robots that God would program us to automatically respond. He would set it up on some great computer program in heaven and then everything would just go according to plan. But the reality is humanity is experts at making a mess of God's creation because God simply refuses to violate our capacity to choose because forced love isn't authentic love. God wants you to authentically love him by virtue of you making free will decisions. And if you're expecting your relationship with God to somehow override you and violate your capacity to choose, then you haven't understood the first thing about what it looks like to follow the God of scripture. Now watch what happens. The first place that they visit is a place called Bethel. Stay here, I'm going to Bethel. And you might not know this, but Bethel, according to Genesis 28, is known as the place of encounter. People love the idea of a God who stays just far enough away from them to never inconvenience their life. But Elijah tells Elisha, I'm going to the place of encounter. And Elisha responds, I will not leave you, I'm coming with. You need places of encounter in your life that you refuse to compromise on because you know that those are locations in which the God of the universe comes close to your life and fundamentally transforms you for the better. Church is a place of encounter. Your community group is a place of encounter. Your prayer closet is a place of encounter. They are God-ordained geographic places that for whatever reason partner with the way that you are hardwired, creating open heaven opportunities for you to engage with the God of the universe. Here's the reality. Encounter doesn't happen by accident. It happens by intentionality. 
The world is screaming, look here, look there, stay here, go over there, be distracted, don't advance, don't really believe this gospel, give in to pressure, bow at the altar of influence, forget God, be embarrassed to be a Christian. I would submit to you tonight that every week that you live serves as a fresh opportunity for you to make some confessions about the type of person you're gonna be. I will not leave, I will not compromise, I will not forget, I will not bow to culture, I will not let go until God does what he has promised to do in my life. See, encountering God is not a decision I can make for you. It's a decision that every believer has to make for themselves. It happens when you decide that what you want most is more important than what you want now. Watch. I want influence now, but I desire God most. Oh, I'd like that relationship now, but I desire God most. I want convenience now, but I desire God most. And if you live life led by the tyranny of the urgent, you always trade the eternal for the temporary and then leave more brokenhearted than you were before. You must learn the art of crucifying what you want now for what you need most. See, Elijah is testing Elisha by giving him the opportunity to stay here, stay the same, stay unchanged, stay in your lane, stay mediocre. But instead, Elisha responds, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I'm not leaving your side until the God of the universe who did it for you does it for me. See, I'm not interested in forcing you into an encounter with God, but I'm gonna give you the opportunity tonight to be marked by his presence. And once you taste the real, there ain't no going back to the fake. But I want you to see something. Elisha wasn't jealous of Elijah's encounter. He was inspired by Elijah's encounter. See, God is no respecter of persons, for if he did it for me, he will do it for you. Elisha responds to his mentor, essentially saying this, I'm not leaving until the God of Elijah becomes the God of my life too. Jacob said, I'm not leaving until you bless me. Moses went on the mountain and said, I'm not leaving until I see your glory. Joshua went into the tent of meeting and said, I'm not leaving until I see your face. Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I'll die. But I'm not leaving you here. Stay here, Elisha, it's okay. No, 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 you're good, you're good. Come on, just stay here. No, it's okay. I'm giving you permission to go. And Elisha says, oh no, I waited my whole life for this. <laughs> You'll get picked up by the chariot of fire, Uber. I am 100% seeing that. <laughs> I'm not missing out on what I signed up to be a part of. I know that you're giving me permission to stay the same. But permission to stay the same as violence against a soul that needs development. I know I can stay here, but if you're going to Bethel, I'm going with you. <laughs> it's like I can almost hear Elisha saying to Elijah, I've heard the stories of what happened in that place. <laughs> I heard the story of when God as an angel wrestled with a man named Jacob. 
I've heard the story of the glory coming down. I've heard the story of men who conversate with God like a man talks to their friend. I've heard what happens in that place. And if you're going there, that means there's something of value from there for me as well. And I refuse to take the easy route and in doing so, give myself an excuse not to encounter the God who can transform everything about me. So Elijah, if you'd be okay with it, let me just tag along. I won't walk too close. I won't bother you. You can walk a little bit ahead. I'm not trying to annoy you, but I've followed you all these years. And there is something that you've attached yourself that has provoked a godly jealousy in my life. And if you're telling me you're going to encounter the God who answers by fire, I'm not missing that for a moment. If you're going to Bethel, take me with you. You need people in your life who are willing to take you with them on the way to the place of encounter. Uh, look, man, I know what you're going through, but listen, we go to church tonight. <laughs> what, church? Really? Come on. I thought like maybe we could just drink our sorrows away tonight. <laughs> I thought maybe like we could just get on shrooms and open our third eye and have some out-of-body experience and forget about the pain of my day-to-day -day existential crisis. We go into church. Yeah, dude, it's a place of encounter. Now, I can't explain it, but you're gonna feel God when you walk in. I can't always just describe everything that's happening, but you go experience the holy, the transcendent, the beautiful, that which is true is gonna make an impact on your life and your soul. I mean, you need people who are willing to invite you to the place of encounter as you develop the tenacity to say, even when this feels like it is doing violence against my flesh, because it is, I'm willing to crucify what my flesh wants now for what my spirit needs most. Remember the flesh is enmity towards God. The flesh is an enemy of, hear me, the flesh is an enemy of God. <laughs> The natural man can't understand spiritual things. Your flesh is always gonna be pulling in the opposite direction, but until you develop the spiritual maturity to say, no, I know what my flesh wants, but the last time I gave into what my flesh wants, <laughs> it made me worse, not better. So let me try something else. If you're going to Bethel, I'm going with you, but it wasn't just Bethel, watch. The Bible says this. The next opportunity that Elijah gives him is this, stay here, I'm, I'm going to Jericho, I'm going to Jericho. Now you might be here tonight and you're familiar a little bit with the story of Jericho, but it most prominently has its place in the book of Joshua and in chapter six. The place of Jericho, I believe, represents the place of conflict. Bethel represents the place of encounter, but I think Jericho represents the place of conflict. This is important for you to understand. God is just as present in your conflict as he is in your peace. And if you signed up to follow Jesus because you hoped it would make life easy, I've got bad news. In this world, you will have trouble, but you can be of good cheer for Christ has overcome the world. Here's the problem. We treat Jesus like an accessory to our already busy and complicated lives. God isn't looking to be an add-on. He's not looking to be your plus one. When you say yes to Jesus, you are simultaneously saying no to every other idol and pledging your life and your allegiance to the true King. <laughs> See, we treat Jesus like celebrities treat those little dogs they carry around in their purses. You know they don't take care of them. You know they don't pay attention for them. It's just cute for a moment. So they walk down to red carpet and everybody gets to see their little dog that they brought along with them. <laughs> and the reality is, is like we like to trot out Jesus whenever it seems beneficial to us. <laughs> 
But I can tell you that when you put your trust in him, not only will he be present in the high moments of your life, he'll be present in the low moments as well. And there are ways that God will reveal himself to you in the low moments of life that will do more medical work to your soul than a thousand years in a counseling office. Why? Because the great counselor, the Prince of Peace, when you're in the lowest of the low and you find out there is no hole so deep that Christ isn't deeper still, it's in those moments where you learn to fully rely on a God who has seen your unknown future and holds every moment in your hands. Elijah goes to the place of encounter. Elisha says, sign me up. But then there's another test. We're going to the place of conflict. We're going to where that great battle happened. We're going to where those walls fell. We're going to that first city that represented 31 more that the Israelites had to conquer in order to fully possess the promised land. I know you were good for the encounter because that was fun at conference night, but are you sure you want to go with me through conflict? The motto of our generation seems to be, I will follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me too much. And here's the reality, this costs you everything. A Christian without conflict is a Christian without convictions. A Christian without conflict is a Christian without moral courage. A Christian without conflict is a Christian without a public witness. Count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Watch what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have just come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Forever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, in fact, he will find it. See, the ethic of the kingdom is upside down from the pedagogical reality of the world in which we live. You wanna get ahead, you better elbow out everybody else and build that resume and build your wealth and be the best that you can be and get recognized and get influential and do all of these types of things. The reality is the kingdom of God is upside down. You wanna live, you gotta die. You wanna be first, you gotta be last. You wanna lead, you gotta serve. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive to the way in which the world works, but the Bible says all promotion comes from the Lord because man's promotion is temporary, but God's promotion is permanent. So you can choose what type of promotion you want, but when God gives promotion, he don't revoke it because it comes from him. The world can revoke your permission. The world can revoke your promotion. You're cool one day, you're canceled the next. That's how the world works. But when God promotes a man like Joseph, it don't matter if his brother sell him into slavery, if Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape, if he gets locked up in prison or harassed by slave traders, it don't matter because when the promotion of the Lord is on your life, you will end up exactly where God wants you to be at the exact right time. But you gotta be willing to embrace the conflict of life because it's in the construct of conflict by which your soul gets motivated most developed. <laughs> there was a time in our world today when, when people give their lives to Jesus, man, it might just cost them everything. But if we sell a generation on costless Christianity, it will produce a powerless faith. But if you count the cost of what it means to actually follow him, what it will give you is power to overcome. See, when you go all in on Jesus, it separates you from the crowd. You can't be bought. You refuse to be compromised. You will not be you will not be convinced otherwise. It brings conflict because of, for the first time in your life, you are swimming upstream, not downstream. Hear me, hear me. You were not born for here. You were born from above. Jericho was the place that God's people marched and walls came tumbling down. It was a city inside the promised land that had to be conquered in order for God's people to advance. Now, when you give your life to Jesus, you cross over into promise, but it doesn't mean that you cross over into comfort. 
See, there are still cities that sit behind the fortified walls in your life that need to crumble. There are still some fights that need to be won. You have signed yourself up for a relentless pursuit of a God who is with you in every single conflict you will ever face. And if Jesus is only the convenient person that you trot out when it helps you in front of the crowd instead of the one that walks with you even in the valley of the shadow of death, then we have signed up for convenience, but we have not signed up for the way of the cross. The way of the cross says, you know what? Where you go, I will follow. With the world behind me and the cross before me, there is no turning back. I've counted the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Is everybody gonna support it? Nope. Is everybody gonna be excited all the time? Nope. Is everybody always gonna understand it? Nope. Is it gonna inconvenience me? Yep. Is it gonna cost me everything and more? Yep. But this is what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And if you live your entire life scared of the conflict because you don't wanna get canceled by the crowd, then you have just revealed the real thing that you worship. What are they going to say about me? Better not show up at that rally. What are they going to say about me? Better not miss that party. What are they going to say about me? (laughs) Man's words fall flat. But God's words are eternal. What does God say about you tonight? (laughs) Because at the end of eternity... That's going to be the one faithful statement that matters. And we want to be known as followers of Jesus. Now, you got to hear me. Going to the place of encounter is fun, but going to the place of conflict is where the basement rooms of your soul are developed. And there is nothing more scary than an undeveloped Christian who lives for the constant thrills of the conference circuit, but not the daily discipline of picking up their cross. Number three, Elijah says, stay here. I'm going to the Jordan River. Elisha says, I made it to the first two. Let's go to the third. If you go, I'm coming with you. I believe the Jordan represented a place of repentance. It's where John the Baptist would call the crowds to forsake all and follow the Jewish Messiah. No Christian journey is complete without coming to grips with our own need to repent. Hear me. Repentance doesn't mean you felt bad for what you did. Repentance means I'm turning away from looking at worthless things to stare at a greater reality. Repentance has nothing to do with feeling bad and everything to do with shifting your gaze. I'm gonna look at Jesus and in doing so be transformed into his image and likeness. See, that's why John the Baptist tells the crowds, repent and behold. Behold who? The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Here's the good news of the gospel. You are not what you've done and you are not what's been done to you. You are not the sum total of your failures or mistakes. You are not what has been said about you. In fact, you are everything that Jesus says you are. 
In James 5, the Bible says, and Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I'm convinced. If Elijah had to go to Bethel, the place of encounter, so do I. If Elijah had to go to Jericho, the place of conflict, so do I. If Elijah has to go to the Jordan River, the place of repentance, so do I. I think that these are three places in the life of a believer that we need to develop an affinity towards and in doing so constantly have our passport book stamped as places that we regularly attend. It's the place of encounter because without encounter with a holy God, I'm trapped in dry, dead religion and performance-based religiosity. I've got to go to the place of encounter. I've got to encounter this God. I can't just go my whole life trying to follow rules, stand up and sit down and clap and act like I'm excited when I'm really not. I've got to encounter this God. But number two, I've got to be willing to face him and face my challenges in the cities and the seasons of conflict, knowing that when the world is at its worst, God is at his best. And I've got to trust him even in the valley of the shadow of death, because not only will I fear no evil, but in fact, most of the tables he prepares for me will be right in front of my enemies. You want a table influence? Get used to staring your enemies in the eye and not backing down. Some of you complaining because you can't find a table to sit at because you're looking in the wrong place. He says, I make a table for you in front of your enemies. <laughs> I make a table for you in Seattle. I make a table for you on campus. I'll make a table for you in that classroom. Well, God, I just wanted to be around everybody to celebrate and cheer when I talk. He says, no, I'm gonna get you a table within a yard of hell and you're gonna rescue people out of darkness for a living. It's the place of conflict. Number three though, it's the place of repentance. Listen to me, for the rest of your life, you'll never graduate out of the need to repent. Hear me, repentance is not beating yourself up. Woe is me, I'm just a worm. Oh God, God hates me, I'm so terrible. It's weird. People are like that and it's weird. I'm just telling you, don't, don't be weird like that, okay? Because can I tell you, an obsession with your own depravity is just inverted pride. So let's just be honest and shame the devil. It's just inverted pride. But repentance is an awareness of the times that I've fallen short. But it's not this, I gotta beat myself up because then God will be more impressed if I just really beat myself up before coming back to him. Repentance looks like this. I'm looking at worthless things and those worthless things are having an impact on my priceless soul. So let me shift to a priceless king. Bam, that's repentance. It's that easy. I've just been really bad. I know, me too. <laughs> but repentance looks like shifting your gaze from worthless things. Because what you behold, you become like. And the message of repentance is incomplete without the message of beholding. And the message of beholding is incomplete without the message of repentance. Repentance is what clears your eyes to properly behold that which is of value. You can't see him for what he's worth until you are willing to shift your gaze from worthless things. And that's why John's message is always a one-two punch. They're like, John was preaching repentance. No, he was preaching repentance and beholding. <laughs> it's Bethel, it's Jericho and it's the Jordan. But watch as the story continues. And so it was when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, ask, ask what I may do for you before I'm taken away from you. 
I love this, Elisha's bold. He like a third year intern, you know what I mean? He like 19, it's his fourth YWAM he's been to, you know, he's like. <laughs> Sorry. Elijah says, what do you want? Ask. I feel like Elisha's like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I'm gonna knock it out of the park. You ain't even ready, Elijah. Ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elisha said this, please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. <laughs> I love the boldness, tenacious ask of a young man who isn't even aware of the consequence of that which he desires but he still won't allow what he doesn't understand to somehow compromise the boldness of his request. Can I tell you just about every time you ask God to do something, you are unaware of how that story will evolve. You're like, God, just use me. He's like, you don't want that because I, I will. I will. And it's going to just flip everything upside down. No, God, I'll do whatever you want. And the Lord says, well, listen, man, if you, if you, really, if you really are saying it, I'll really do it. But I'm just, I, you just don't know what you're asking for. Remember when John and James, <laughs> the sons of thunder, who God turned into the apostles of love, their mom came up to Jesus and she was like, hey, listen, when you get into your kingdom, put these guys at your right and left. They're the two. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. He's like, they will drink from my cup, but you don't know what you're asking. And I love a God who, even when we don't know what we're asking, is more than faithful to give every good and perfect gift from the Father above, the Father of lights, who in him there is no shadow of turning. When you say yes to Jesus, you know a fraction of 1% of what that yes looks like. But you've just got something in your heart that says, if, if God's here, I'm gonna ask for it. <laughs> I don't know what impartation means, but I need somebody to pray for me. I don't know what it's gonna cost me, but I'm just here to ask. And finally, Elijah's getting ready to get taken up in a chariot of fire. He looks back at Elisha. He says, now listen, I gave you three options to test you. And every single time you pass the test by being willing to follow me, now I'm getting ready to be taken up. So ask me anything and I will do it for you. And he says, please let me watch inherit, inherit a double portion of your spirit. Listen, that's language attached to familial relationships. Hear me, hear me. You don't get to inherit something from that person that you podcast every other week. You don't get to inherit something from some drive-through relationship with somebody you met once. When Elijah responds in the affirmative to Elisha's request, he is passing on the inheritance of a father. One of the problems that we have in our generation is that we want a father's inheritance without the allegiance of a sonship spirit. <laughs> we a visitor, <laughs> we an Airbnb believer. Where a when it's a convenient, I'll show up. But all of a sudden, inheritances are getting passed out and we're acting like we are protégés when really we are parasites. He says, let me inherit. Elijah says, you are like my son. You have asked a difficult thing. I heard the Lord say this to me when I said yes to planting this church nine years ago. He said, Russ, you have asked for a difficult thing, <laughs> but I'm a good God. And this will cost you more than you think. 
and it will be better than you can ever imagine. But hear me, you have asked for a difficult thing. Hear me, friend, hear me, friend. You wanna give your life to Jesus, get right, live radical for him. You have asked for a difficult thing. Following Jesus is not easy, but it is worth it. You have asked for a difficult thing. Watch, watch. Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Then it happened as they continued and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. They separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now I know what you're saying, oh, come on, you really believe that? Yeah, I do. Because here's the reality. I've already made the logical leap to believe that there was a dead man in the grave who three days later got out of it and then was ascended into heaven by a legion of angels. So yes, sorry if I believe this and it sounds wild. The Bible is wild because you serve a supernatural God. <laughs> so yes, a chariot on fire with horses that were also on fire showed up on a road and picked up a man and then took him into heaven in a tornado. Now, I can't explain that, but I'm not embarrassed to believe it. That'd be a word for somebody. Then it happened as they continued and talked that suddenly a chariot appeared. You gotta be ready for the suddenly. You gotta be ready for the suddenly. Some of you have been asking for things and you don't know their delivery date, but God does. And suddenly he shows like a thief in the night. Suddenly two are in the field. One is taken, the other is left. Suddenly there are two in bed. One goes up and the other is left. God works through the avenue of suddenlies. <laughs> and suddenly it appeared. And Elijah tells this to Elisha. Watch, you will have what you ask, but here's my thing. Here's my thing. Only if you keep your eyes on me. For if you look back, you will not receive what you have asked for. But if you keep your eyes on me, you will inherit like a son, the promise of a father. Hear me. The reward for faithfully following Jesus is the invitation to ask. Here's the problem. I can't impart to you something that you aren't hungry for. See, the best gift that you could ever have this evening is the gift of hunger. Because hunger will take you places like nothing else can. Psalm 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, this that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty, seek him in his temple. See, it's hard, hear me, hear me. It is hard to find what you aren't looking for. So here's my question for you tonight. What is your ask. I'm telling you, every time you gather in this building Sunday night, you should come with an ask from the Lord. God, here's what I'm asking for from you tonight. <laughs> because the Bible says we have not because we ask not. Which means the humility to ask is the trigger for the supernatural. Well, if God knows, then he should just give it. God does know, but he's waiting for you to know that God knows. And when you've got the humility to ask, what you are saying to God is, I know in my own power, I can't provide it. So I need you to show up and do this for me. So I'm gonna ask the Father above. Even Jesus asked of the Father. 
The one who says me and the Father are one. The one who is hypostatic, fully God and fully man. <laughs> the one who is part of the triune Godhead. Even he develops the linguistic narrative of asking the Father. In John 17, he asks of the Father on behalf of his followers. I'm asking that they would be one. I am asking that they would share in my glory. I am asking that you would keep them safe in the world. I am asking that you would not lose any of them. Even Jesus asks of the Father. If Jesus asked of the Father, what is our excuse? Well, if the pastor was really prophetic, he would just know. No, the pastor is prophetic, but I'm waiting for you to ask. What are you here for prayer? Well, just whatever you sense. No, I'm not doing whatever you sense prayers. I can already sense it. I'm not asking you for your request because I don't know it. I am asking you for your request because I want you to verbalize it. Because you have not, because you ask not. Ask moves you into the position of humility. That says, if I don't get this from God, I don't know if I can make it another day. I am desperately in need of his touch. I am desperately in need of an encounter. I am desperately in need of staying strong in conflict. I am desperately in need of washing my eyes from looking at worthless things. That's what I'm here to ask God to do. When you ask, you are bowing your heart in reverence to the God who already wants to give, but he's waiting for you to ask. What's your ask tonight? Watch. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Elisha asked for a double portion. Whatever's on your life, Elijah, I want double. Whatever anointing you got, double it. Whatever you've carried, double it. Whatever miracles you've seen, double it. Whatever glory you've encountered, double it. Hear me, it is not enough to live up to what the last generation had. God, I am asking for a double portion for my life. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Everything that you have seen so far is to stir your appetite and give you the courage to ask for more. How depressing is it to live a life just asking to barely live up to what the last generation had? I wanna use their ceiling to become our floor. And by the time I die, I want my ceiling to be somebody else's floor because the best way that we honor the last generation is by running further than them. Elisha views Elijah and he doesn't go, that's my cap. He goes, that's my starting point. Give me double. Oh, you asked for a difficult thing because you will have double trouble and you will have double conflict and you're gonna need double repentance and you will have double encounters. You've asked for a difficult thing, but I'm gonna honor that which you've asked for even though you don't understand the weight or the cost of it. And if you will keep your eyes on me, you will have your request. I'm here to tell you, if you'll keep your eyes on God, you will have that which you have requested. Our temptation is that when the smoke happens and the tornado happens and the things begin to shift around us in our world, we are so easily distracted by what's going on in different people's lives and in different cities, different seasons, what's happening on social media, that we get so distracted that we miss out on the God who was like, I'm giving you what you asked for, but you're looking in 17 different directions. You can't even see that which is right in front of you. We miss the forest for the trees. We trip over the present that's standing right in the middle of our pathway. You know what Elijah says? If you keep your eyes on me, it'll be yours. Hear me, hear me. Distraction is the number one killer of vision. It robs you of the right perspective. It steals your opportunity for advancement. I know it's easier to blame the devil for all of our hardships, but I'm telling you tonight, if you were to kick the butt of the person who is most responsible for your setbacks, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. 
Colossians 3 and 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you're dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is an act of cultural rebellion to refuse to be distracted by what others so often give their attention to. For if the enemy can steal my perspective, he can control my vision. If he can control my vision, he can dictate my outcomes. The battle for your destiny begins the day that you take responsibility for the direction of your gaze. Let me end here. Verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. Elisha took up the mantle. Elisha struck the water. And the same God who answered for Elijah now begins to answer for Elisha. Now watch, the mantle was like a coat or a robe that prophets would wear. It was an outside sign that represented an interior calling and anointing. The miracle wasn't the mantle, but the miracle was represented by the mantle. A mantle was what was used to mark a person who had been encountered by God. Everywhere they walked, people would say, that's a prophet, that's a messenger of God, that's a sent one, that's a man or a woman who has been set apart for God's holy purpose. Elisha grabs the mantle and places it on his shoulders, and from that day forward, he walks in a double portion of everything that Elijah experienced. See, I believe that tonight is a night of marking or a night of mantles. It's an opportunity for you to pick up what others have laid down and make the decision that you are going to run further and faster than those who came before you because there is a Jesus who is worthy, who has called you by name. Elijah's going up and the only thing he leave behind is his old prophet's robe. And I assume Elisha is so freaked out by the events that have transpired over the last 15 minutes that he is staring at Elijah's robe laying on the ground as his dude has just been taken up by the horses that are on fire. And he's thinking to himself, now what? <laughs> Do you know that Elijah had seven major miracles in his life and Elisha had 14? <laughs> Do you know what the 14th one was? When one of the soldiers was killed and thrown into the cave that held Elisha's bones, he sprang back to life. I'm telling you, you have the opportunity to walk so close with God that even far after the date of your death, there are still people who receive out of the anointing of your encounters. Oh, that, that was a man or a woman who walked with God. Every time I call them to memory in my mind, I, I think about their faithfulness. I get courage in my heart again. I feel like I'm coming back to life, telling the testimony of the faithful. Elisha's just standing there, looking at his man's coat. Where'd he go? And I think like, honestly, Elisha in a moment of frustration picks up his staff, strikes the water. 
Because all Elijah says is, all right, if you keep your eyes on me, you'll have it. But it's not like tangible in the sense that it comes with like some certificate of authenticity. He's like, I don't, I, did I get it? Did I not get it? I, I think I kept my eyes on him. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I got distracted. I'm not sure. All, all that's left is the old prophet's robe. He picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, picks up his staff. It's like, great. What do I do now? What am I supposed to do? It's my guy. I've been following him. Did everything that he asked. I've gone to Bethel. I've gone to Jericho. I've been to the Jordan River. And almost like in a moment of frustration, he picks up his staff. He strikes the water. Where is the God of Elijah? And as he does, the water splits. And it provides for him a pathway to move forward. And in doing so, Elisha becomes a double portion prophet for the nation of Israel. <laughs> I believe for some of you in here tonight, God wants to so in a good way, irritate and agitate what has been sleeping in your heart that you strike the ground with this question, where's the God of Elijah? You know, for me, when I got turned up on this message of revival, believing that God is gonna save a city and transform a region, most of my prayers, I find myself praying that way, like not mad at God at all, but just like sometimes frustrated with the darkness around me, I find myself striking the ground. Where is the God of Elijah? Except my prayers look different. <laughs> Where is the God of those past revival movements I've so studied and heard about? Where's the God who showed up in power in these different cities and nations of the earth that I've witnessed? Where is that God for Seattle? Where is that God for Snohomish? Where is that God for Kirkland? Where is that God? And I think sometimes God is inviting us to that place of like holy discontentment where we are willing to say, you know what? I am will pick up the mantle, but it's more than just a robe that I wear on my shoulders. It's an attitude and a discipline of my spirit that is causing me to call on God with the same ferociousness of those who have come before me. Where is the God of Elijah? See, God is bound by covenant. He has to be faithful to what he has said. He is not a man that he should lie. God in his sovereignty limits himself, meaning there are certain things he refuses to do. He refuses to lie. He refuses to give up on you. He refuses to sell the next generation short. He refuses to allow the next movement to somehow be less glorious than the last movement. But I think he's waiting for people who are a little bit discontent with what they are seeing in the world around them. Where is that God for me? And as soon as Elisha strikes the water, it's like God unveils himself. Says, I've been here the whole time. And now, Elisha, it's your season. Arise. And the waters split in what begins as many years of profound miracles. For you tonight, my prayer is that God would double what has been in your generational line. The good stuff, not the bad stuff. It would be a doubling in your life. That what you have honored, hear me, in the lives of mentors before you would be doubly manifest in your life. 
that it would not just be you living up barely to the standard that was set, but there would be a double portion increase on Elisha's all across this room tonight who are unwilling to go another day, just trying to live up to what the last generation had. Now we're gonna go further. Where is the God of Elijah? Come on, stand as we close.